everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to have my old friend Johann Petrovsky-Stern on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Jews in the Russian Army, 1827 to 1917, Drafted into Modernity. Um, you've probably seen Fiddler on the Roof. Almost everyone has seen Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, from that movie, you will have gotten an impression of the treatment of Jews in Imperial Russia. Um, part of that, this is not dealt with in Fiddler on the Roof, concerns the story of the uh, forcible drafting of young Jewish men, even Jewish boys, by the Imperial Russian Army. Um, th- this is a sad song and a tale that has been told for many generations now. Now, the thing about Johannin's book that is uh, v- very interesting and challenging is that he calls uh, this entire story into question. The story that he tells is, is not one of uh, the oppressive Russians wading into the uh, shtetl and forcibly dragging Russian boys to be abused and converted. It's, it's not really that story at all. It's really the story of a modernizing monarch, in this case primarily Nicholas I, not noted as a modernizer, uh, uh, attempting to bring Russian society up to enlightenment speed by including national minorities in the military, uh, the Jews among them. And one of the things that Johannin points out is the Jews really weren't treated any differently than, than other national minorities in the 19th century. Uh, it was certainly hard duty, the Russian military, um, but the Russians themselves, uh, especially the Russian elite, uh, were not so much interested in anti-Semitism as they were in making sure that, the, that these Jews and other national minorities um, served uh, the uh, Tsar as, as, as their fellows did. Um, and uh, as Johannin points out, the, the, the Jews of the shtetl um, accommodated uh, this new challenge uh, really quite wonderfully. They, they, they succeeded in, in, in assimilating themselves to the, to the Russian army and, then, and more broadly to Russian society. Uh, so really this is a, a story that is, is one um, you know, al- almost of triumph for, for them. It's not really a sad story at all. It's a story of normalcy. This is what was happening in the 19th century. So uh, I, I thought it was a terrific book. And, and I should also say that Johannin's personal story is, is almost as interesting as the story of Jews in the Russian army in the 19th century. And he talks a little bit about that, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I did. And so without further ado, uh, here's the interview. Hi, Johannin. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine. Just great. Good. You're too cold in Chicago, but rather than that, everything is okay. Too cold. That's the way it comes in the Midwest. Too cold in the winter. That keeps uh, the riffraff out, I think. Um, exactly. I should uh, tell our listeners that we're talking to Johann Petrovsky-Stern today, and uh, we'll be discussing his fantastic new book, Jews in the Russian Army, 1827 to 1917, the subtitle of which, the very interesting subtitle, is Drafted into Modernity. Um, I've read the book. It's terrific. I've worked with Johannin for many years, and it's a, it's a real treat for me to be able to talk to him again because he's one of the uh, he's certainly one of the most interesting fellows I have ever met. You don't have to respond to that, Johannin. That's okay. I know you're modest. But uh, why don't we Thank be- you, Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> why don't you begin by telling us a little bit uh, about yourself, where you come from, how you became interested in history, and so on and so forth. Marshall, thank you very much for having me on your show. Uh, sure. First, I need to tell you that uh, in order for me to tell the story um, where I was born and how um, 
I managed to get where I am now, um, we need approximately a semester, uh, maybe <laughs> maybe a quarter and a half. Um, I believe that's true. I've heard your story, and I'm telling you, I think you're right. But see if we can condense it, the Reader's Digest version. Right, Reader's Digest version. So, um, uh, in brief, uh, I was born um, about 45 years ago, uh, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, uh, called Kiev, Ukraine, <laughs> um, which was uh, the then uh, Soviet Union. And I was raised uh, by an assimilated, uh, relatively Jewish family, nominally Jewish family. Uh, I knew nothing about Jewish studies. Uh, my uh, the beginning and the end of my uh, knowledge of Judaica was the word Tumbalalaika, and this word I've heard not from Jewish songs, but from the song by a famous uh, Russian dissident uh, bard, uh, Alexander Galich. Which means that I was a normal uh, Soviet uh, kid uh, interested in all sorts of cultural pursuits. Uh, and um, among those pursuits, uh, one of the most important things for me was um, comparative literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was um, a scholar uh, and still is a scholar of uh, uh, Russian and Soviet literature. And I thought that I'll do something that he does not do. Um, I got interested in um, Latin American and uh, European um, literature of the 19th, 20th century. And um, after graduating from Kiev University with uh, approximately five languages, uh, I became a grad student at Moscow University, um, where I presented my dissertation in 1988, uh, and it was on the politics of um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. (laughs) I'm laughing because it's pretty far from what you do now, but go ahead. (laughs) Right. Uh, Well, if you think that Pueblo, Latin American, Colombian Pueblo, is... uh, Something like a shtetl, okay. but on the other side of the ocean, uh, you will get approximately to where I am now. All right. <laughs> this is uh, to be postponed for the next part of our conversation. Okay. Now, after that, um, I taught uh, about five years um, in Kiev as uh, a professor in Kiev University, the Department of Comparative Literature. I taught uh, um, the survey of European novel. I taught uh, the... Um, history of aesthetics, uh, the theory of the novel, um, uh, certainly romanticism, uh, renaissance, um, 20th century modernism, um, and so on and so forth. At the same time, um, I became very much interested in a number of writers who, so to say, shaped uh, my interest in the history of religion. Uh, First and foremost, Jorge Luis Borges. Mm And I prepared um, and edited and published in uh, 1992 uh, the edition of Borges um, in Russian, which covered pretty much everything Borges wrote on history of different religions. Mm -hmm. Um, While commenting upon Borges, I realized that I'm very comfortable with his quotes from Thomas Kempis or uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, but I'm not uncomfortable with a bunch of names that he was using, and I really didn't know where they were coming from. Mm -hmm. And certainly these were all um, Hebrew terms, uh, Kabbalistic terms, um, names of uh, Spanish Jewish writers, philosophers, and so on and so forth. And I thought that it's a shame that I'm considering myself, you know, so prominently um, positioned uh, among East European intellectuals, and I know nothing about, you know, this uh, clumsy guys, uh, and I decided to know something, uh, to, to learn something about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually, you know, Borges um, 
drew me uh, to uh, my quest uh, for Judaism, and uh, this is the time when I really shifted from uh, Latin American European modernism to the study of uh, um, Jewish history. Yeah, through Borges. <laughs> you have to say right. that's, that's pretty curious. That's very interesting. So then at that point, that was about what year, and what did you decide to do? Uh, look, uh, I would not tell you what year, because it was actually not just one year, but one day. Right. Um, really? Um, wow. uh, right, right. It was one day when I was uh, standing um, near the so-called White House, uh, Yeltsin's um, residence, um, during the uh, uh, famous or infamous coup uh, uh -huh. of the 50s uh, against Yeltsin, and I was standing there so to say, among the defenders of the White House, yeah. um, oh, a couple of nights. And I had pretty, plenty of time to think about uh, who I am, where I'm going. You know, people were waiting uh, to be smashed by the tanks approaching Moscow. And I used this time to think about myself. So, um, but by that time, I already submitted uh, my edition of Borges, of Ortega y Gasset, of G.K. Chesterton, of Leonardo Shasha. So I had four books forthcoming, you know, mm -hmm. with my uh, with different uh, um, level of my participation. And um, at that point, I decided that I am going nowhere. Uh, really, I am uh, mm -hmm. spreading myself too thin. And at that very moment, I decided, well, it's time for me to look for the depth. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I decided to uh, to go for Judaic studies. Did you go? Did you um, now? Did you also have a, a simultaneous religious conversion? Did you go to the shul and say, "Teach me"? Or it's difficult to say. Um, eventually, I did, uh, but uh, I started with. Uh, you know, I was approximately, let's say, 30 years old, and I started with uh, studying the difference between Aleph and Beit, because mm -hmm. I literally did not know alphabet. Yeah. So uh, it was uh, just starting really from scratch. Uh, people who have some sort of Jewish education in this country do not understand the level of zero I had at that particular time. <laughs> so I started really from ground zero. Yeah. You're very modest. Uh, Go ahead. Right. So um, then um, I uh, thought I managed to master the basics of uh, uh, Hebrew language, and mm -hmm. I went to Jerusalem. I spent some time in the yeshiva. My wife uh, quite nicely sponsored my trip to Jerusalem, and it was uh, all independently done. I was not sponsored by any kind of uh, fancy-schmancy Jewish organizations. I was not affiliated with anybody. But when I came back, um, I, was in, uh, I was invited uh, by a local library where they had declassified a huge collection of Judaica manuscripts, mm -hmm. and they asked me to work with this collection. This is how I yeah. became interested in uh, Jewish books, Jewish manuscripts, and, and through these manuscripts and books, I came to conversion, and I came to um, the discovery of the importance of Jewish uh, history. So that the conversion and the conversion to Judaic studies happened uh, simultaneously, but not exactly, you know, on the same time scale. Is that right? Right. Uh, I would say um, first I went for uh, some knowledge, um, mm -hmm. and while I realized um, I am uh, already reading Hebrew manuscripts, I realized I cannot go anywhere until I know something about Judaism, mm -hmm. and this purely intellectual curiosity. Uh, uh, 
brought me to uh, this uh, horrible, horrible uh, Chicago ghetto where I'm now <laughs> yeah, sitting right. with my black garmoka. Right, exactly. Uh, so I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say that you were kind of a Shiva bucher without the Shiva part, and then you got exactly, the Shiva part exactly. later. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, I would say the following um, in regard to my uh, Shiva um, education. When I got my um, Rothschild Fellowship in '94, '95, um, and I spent a year with my family in Jerusalem, I I came back to uh, the yeshiva where I had been in '93 and asked them to provide me with a rabbi who would just sit with me and, yeah. and study with me uh, what they call blood gemara, the, mm -hmm. the Talmud, mm -hmm. and and I had a very intensive, uh, I would say. Ten months long education, and after that, so mm -hmm. since '96, um, I'm trying to be uh, what they call in the yeshivish world uh, a matmid. Uh, matmid is a person who uh, learns uh, the Talmud uh, on the daily basis. Mm -hmm. Another, so the Talmud is in the center of, of my interest. I do uh, the uh, legal um, uh, codes such as Shulchan Aruch and other things, but, mm -hmm. but I was trying to have what they call chivruta, that is to say, the daily study with mm -hmm. visa somebody you study with somebody um, and this somebody in my case is is a rabbi from the Tel Shiva mm -hmm. so I'm doing this for already 10 years I came to the United States as a graduate student um, um, who wanted to get uh, a new kind of education at Brandeis University so in 96 um, I came to this country to study under Anthony Polanski mm -hmm. um, and to uh, do my research and write my dissertation on East European Jewish history mm -hmm. and this is uh, what uh, was already the time when I thought I have my dissertation in the pocket I wanted to do uh, the uh, self-governing organizations um, in the Pale of Settlement late 18th early 19th century and I wanted to show um, the, I wanted to discuss the uh, fragmentation of the um, of the power in a Jewish community at that particular time, uh, before and um, after uh, Nicholas the uh, First took the power. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was uh, a project, and I didn't know that I will be. Um, competitive enough to be able to uh, fight for um, a uh, place for myself um, at an American university after I finish uh, my, my, uh, my studies, but this is exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, that's great. Um, and that's where we met, actually, in Boston, if I recall, many, many years ago. Is that right? Yes. yes uh, and right. and um, I owe you uh, my first uh, scholarly <laughs> publication. Uh, you know, I Wait, can... no, was well, it, well, well, it wasn't your first scholarly publication. It was your fourth. 40th or something. <laughs> no, no, no. Look, uh, I, I do not count my uh, publications in, in uh, oh, British, uh, French, Italian, yeah, Spanish, a, and Latin American literature. That's a modesty it's, thing again. You have to stop that. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, there is this Spanish proverb uh, that I like and that does not exist in English. It, it, it is borrón y cuenta nueva. It means that you... Uh, you blot out, you cross out an okay. entire paragraph, <laughs> and you start uh, you start from from mm -hmm. from the new line, writing your life uh, from the beginning. Yeah. You know what Pasternak used to used to call "mista iglavy zhizni celi achorkivaya na polach." So you cross out uh, the places and the chapters of your life, and you start anew. This yeah. is what why I'm yeah. saying okay, you know thanks. you are to blame uh, okay. <laughs> when we talk about the beginning of my uh, okay. academic career in the United States. Okay. Well, it was a pleasure working with you then, and it is now so let's um so you started by working on was that the kahal
Paul that you were talking about? You were working on the yes. Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, and so how did you get I from was, there from to the, to the Russian army or to the Jews in the Russian army? That's an interesting question. And um, this is what happened. Um, I was studying what they call Chavurot. Chavurot are um, local um, self-governing, voluntary um, philanthropic learning societies, uh, ubiquitous um, in uh, each and every shtetl in uh, the Payless settlement. And by the shtetl, I mean a uh, private Polish town uh, eventually submitted on, uh, under Russian control uh, that had, um, oh, I would say, some percentage of Poles, some percentage of, of Russian Orthodox, but mostly uh, Jewish. Mm-hmm. So I was studying this particular environment, and um, I was very much interested in what they call Pinkasim, the records of this uh, Jewish societies that give you a glimpse into what the society was about, into their uh, uh, statutes, into their regulations, into their philanthropic activities, into their learning pursuits, into the uh, in, into their encounter with um, Hasidism, and by Hasidism I mean the uh, movement of religious revivalism, mm-hmm. very popular in East Europe at the end of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, at that point uh, I came to uh, Lenin well, was it Leningrad or St. Petersburg at that time? I don't remember. It was 94. <laughs> right? It, in Russia, things change so fast. You know, you have to have somebody who will be in control just of the name change. And that's the great dissertation the, Russia. The Bureau of Name Changes. Yes. Right, exactly, exactly. So um, I am uh, there for, for a conference sponsored by American Jewish Committee, and I got a call from uh, the um, Museum of... Ethnography, Russian Museum of Ethnography, mm-hmm. and the lady who is in charge of the uh, famous uh, East European uh, Judaica collection at this Museum of Ethnography um, asked me whether I can come and look at um, an, a manuscript that they cannot identify. Hmm. I asked her who had seen the manuscript, and she told me uh, she named a number of Israeli scholars, very prominent scholars, who looked at the manuscript, uh, could understand what it is about, but really could not identify it. They hmm. could not read the title, hmm. and the title was in Hebrew. So, you know, hmm. I was uh, hmm. I was amazed that you know people look at the Hebrew title and cannot understand what yeah. it is about. I asked her what it is about. She says this is kind of a record book of 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 an ethnic group. Well, I've never <laughs> seen record books of ethnic groups because you know if you're Jewish, you're Jewish. You cannot be, you know, Chuvasha Jew or, or Tartar Jew. Yeah. That's it. You're done. You're stuck. So um, I went there. She put a manuscript in front of me. It was a very nicely preserved manuscript uh, in folio. And on the title page, there were two words, uh, or maybe three words. Uh, it said, Chevra or Chavura Shel Briansky Polk. <laughs> that is to say, <laughs> a Jewish society of the Bryansk Regiment. Yeah. And, and, and certainly it was a transliterated Russian title. Yeah. Um, the first word was in, 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 in Hebrew, and, and the two other were in, in Russian, transliterated in, in Hebrew. Yeah. Oh, and I was absolutely amazed, because uh, this was um, a society of observant Jews who were drafted into the Russian army about 1843, and they managed to create a society that lasted until 1893. Mm-hmm. So it's 50 years mm-hmm. uh, of longevity, which was an amazing thing to begin with. I knew about similar things. I've heard about them, but I've never seen actually a manuscript. And this manuscript reflected the movements of the regiment, the um, 
uh, participation of the regiment in um, the Hungarian Austro-Hungarian campaign 48, in in Polish campaign 1830s, in another Polish campaign 1863, 1864, in the Crimean War um, 1854, 55. So these guys were in all sorts of wars, and mm-hmm. they managed to remain uh, observant guy or relatively observant I don't know you know it's, it's a prescriptive document it's not a descriptive document but if you know they are commissioning the the Torah scroll for themselves it means that they are continuing to act as mm-hmm. as a prayer group as a learning group as a group that that uh, you know uh, brings different Jews together from different um, um, companies of the regiment and they do something together mm-hmm. so um this kind of this manuscript really um, uh, was uh, was a a, a, a gear uh, or a gear that 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 really turned me uh, into a different direction. Mm-hmm. So it was really within my intellectual interests. So this is exactly what I was looking for. I was looking for this kind of uh, um, voluntary societies and and uh, self-governing organizations. But then I asked myself a question: Maybe I should use it and write uh, something about Jews in the Russian army. Mm-hmm. And I wrote um, I wrote a um, chapter in the book that, that you and mm-hmm. Eric Lore very nicely published with mm-hmm. Brill, mm-hmm. and um, I wrote a number of other chapters, and they, I saw, then I saw that, <clears throat> well, I'm at Brandeis. Uh, people who teach me um, really ask very important questions about modernization, assimilation, mm-hmm. integration, acculturation, imperialization of the Jews, mm-hmm. and, and I'm stuck with my ghettoized topic, you know, about the self-governing societies, mm-hmm. the settled, maybe I should do something different, maybe mm-hmm. it's more challenging, maybe more uh, complex. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, something that I would not do as fast as I, you know, could have done the uh, uh, this other, uh, you know, dissertation for which I had, I had already all my primary sources handy, and I decided to write a dissertation about Jews in the Russian army. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is how I got to to the book and uh, to mm-hmm. the archives of the Russian military in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and mm-hmm, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And this is how we got to the book, uh, Jews in the Russian Army, Draft of the Modernity. I right. see. Well, uh, you know, it's a, it's a terrific topic, and one of the things I really liked about the book was its uh, very direct and straightforward confrontation of what we might call um, Jewish, and especially Eastern European Jewish, folklore about the relationship between Jews and the Russian army. And by folklore, what I mean is the stories that everyone, you know, everyone seems to know, all Jews know about the way that Jews were dragooned into the Russian army and how this was horribly oppressive. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that background. Right. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, when I came to this country, uh, the first, you would not believe, the first Shabbat, I'm sitting next to <coughs> a Rebetzin uh, and to a rabbi, and Rebetzin uh, asked me about uh, my uh, field of interest, and I mentioned something about uh, my subfield of interest, and she says, well, I'll tell you a story. And she tells me a story how her uh, grandfather in 1897 uh, ran away from uh, the Russian army or ran away from the draft because he did not want to serve for 25 years in the Russian army. <laughs> so, and Yeah, you laugh because you know that 25 service was something that did not exist already after 1834. <laughs> now, what kind of 1897 you are talking about? So, which yeah. means that people still live with this myth that Russian army is about drafting the miners and nobody but Jews are drafted as miners. Then they keep them uh, busy for 25 years, and they convert them, convert um, them yeah. uh, under duress uh, into Russian Orthodoxy. And if you do not convert, they torture you. 
And these stories continue until 1917, until uh, the triumphant Soviet power comes and, and redeems the Jews from the oppression. Well, mm -hmm. you know, I've heard these stories, and unfortunately, these stories shaped uh, mostly, I would say, 100% of um, uh, literature, of literary criticism, and most scholars drew heavily from these literary sources, um, I would say, you know, quite uh, prominently uh, a number of years ago, two years ago, uh, somebody in Israel published a book about uh, the Tsar's sol uh, children's soldiers. And it's about this uh, Jewish children who were drafted um, as um, uh, teenage kids to the army and about the horrible fate there. And it's all based on literary sources. So uh, people do not look at what is what really was going on in the army. And I asked myself a, myself a question, uh, to what extent the story we are telling is really a history mm -hmm. and I realized that, that it is it is not history it's 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 something different and um, I understood that in order to um, really find out what's going on we have to uh, to do a different kind of, of, a, of a search and uh, it's important to look not only for, uh, at, at this uh, you know poor kids who I really sympathize with very much uh, through the prism of the Jewish community but rather we have to look at them through the prism of the Russian military mm -hmm. and in order to understand what was really the fate of the Jews in the Russian army I have to ask the Russian army what do what did you do to the Jews who were drafted? Mm -hmm. And I spent um, about two years in in a different uh, Russian military archives. Probably you know that Russian Военно-Исторический Архив, Российский Архив, Russian Historical Military Archive is the biggest uh, and the richest archive um, in the Russian Federation. Mm -hmm. it has seven seven million um, uh, files, uh, enormous amount of documents, and the period that I was looking at uh, from 1827 till 1917 was. Uh, pretty well covered. Um, the only thing was to find out uh, the um, material related to Jews in the archives. Mm -hmm. And so uh, then I realized that the military was trying to religiously accommodate this uh, mm -hmm. Jews settles um, in the Russian army. Um, different uh, important laws and regulations were issued in order to, um, I would say, guarantee their freedom of conscience. Mm -hmm. Let's just take a, uh, before we go there, let's take one step back before you talk about their attempts to accommodate in whatever way they did um, Jewish religious practice. Because one of the things I really liked about the book was the very beginning where you point out, and I want you to talk a little bit about this, that the the Russians and um, Nicholas the first actually comes off in your book uh, as quite an enlightened fellow. He's not usually that's not usually the way we think about him. But the the attempt to bring Jews into the army and to modernize them in this way was not particularly Russian. It was part of a more general. Uh, tendency among um, uh, large monarchical states after the French Revolution and even before to uh, create what we would now call kind of civil rights and obligations, that the Russians were hardly the first and the Jews were not picked out among uh, nationalities. And in fact, this was an attempt to make everyone equal. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Right. Um, um, look, I believe you are absolutely right. Um, I spent uh, about 100 pages at the beginning of the book discussing the European context. And this is uh, what I think is my modest contribution to the field. Uh, whatever I discuss, um, I am um, trying to apply the method that I call, uh, you know, it's not a historical term, I just call it this way. I call, I call it... Um, an accurate context. Mm -hmm. By the accurate context, I mean the immediate context. 
if you look at Nicholas first, um, through the prism of the uh, great reforms uh, of the 1860s, 1870s in Russia, you would say certainly Alexander II is, is a great reformer, is, is an enlightened uh, monarch, and so on and so forth, and, and Nicholas first is a schmuck. <laughs> However, if you look at Nicholas, um, placing him in his immediate environment, you will see that he is the most enlightened among his crazy um, colleagues. Mm -hmm. There are approximately two and a half people who can rely, who he can rely on, Uvarov and Kiselov, but much later in his career. And, and uh, when he starts in 25, there are really nobody who would support his um, enlightened approach to, um, to uh, the imperial um, uh, development. And, and what he does, he simply continues the politics uh, towards national minorities and borderlands um, that you would find... Um, uh, in France, um, in in, um, in in Prussia, in Italy, um, and in in Austria. Mm -hmm. So he is really following the steps of the enlightened monarchs, and mm -hmm. he is an enlightened monarch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is uh, one of the um, interesting things that I discovered about him. Um, so he certainly is not interested in just bringing Jews into the army and, and Christianize them. Well, <laughs> he thinks about that. I, I I don't want to say that he does not uh, um, entertain this kind of this kind of an idea. He does, but. But this is not his primary purpose. He wants to um, extend uh, rights and duties uh, to the borderlands, mm -hmm. and he wants to integrate the borderlands into the uh, into the main society. Remember, uh, all this territory where Jews live uh, are new to Russia. Mm -hmm. um, Russia did not have any Jews before 1772. Mm -hmm. Russia partitioned Poland between 1772 and 1795, and now, together with this chunk of Polish territory, Russia also inherited uh, between. Uh, something between um, 900,000 and 1,200,000 Jews, mm -hmm. right? And they are absolutely not integrated into society. Catherine makes the first step trying to integrate them into different Russian estates, town dwellers and, and merchants, mm -hmm. and, and, and then um, Nicholas uh, makes the next step. He says, well, let's make them useful uh, to the society, for the society. So for him, it's very important to um, um, have Jews uh, who are fulfilling the duties. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is something that people did not uh, realize when they were looking at Nicholas. They were saying, well, uh, Nicholas is uh, re really extending the, uh, the duties and not extending the rights. That's correct. I do not doubt that that's correct. Mm -hmm. But the problem of Nicholas is that he does this for everybody. Mm -hmm. yeah. him, the duty is more important than the rights. Because the rights he associates with the Decemberist movement mm -hmm. and, and uh, with, with the French Revolution. And he knows you extend the rights, you end up uh, you know, being decapitated uh, as, as, uh, as the French monarchs. He does not want this state. Mm -hmm. But for him to make duties equally distributed among different strata of the population, among different ethnic groups uh, in Russia, this is what is important. And this is certainly a modernizing step. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting in that way because he does follow on. Uh, I, I think he was probably looking across the border at uh, at, at Austria and saying so that they've done this, and, and so we can probably do it as well. In fact, we have some of their old territory, so we can probably get away with it. I'm interested in the question, though, of how the uh, communal organizations that you know so much about uh, reacted to the announcement and then imposition of the draft. What did the Kahal and these other organizations say about it? 
Um, look, I'll tell you uh, something about that, but I need to mention that um, the first person to describe this uh, communal reaction was was the uh, Columbia professor Michael Stanislavski, and what he did um, he did without access to uh, to the archive. Mm-hmm. Yet he was able to say a number of important uh, things that um, I just uh, capitalize on. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have another person who was working on this on a similar subject, mm-hmm. Olga Lipa, who published a book about the. Um, uh, response, um, uh, literal response to conscription, and she also discusses um, the uh, communal reaction to. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, uh, dis- I'm, I'm, I'm not here the the, the person who really discovers uh, the things. But I'll tell you just uh, very briefly uh, mm-hmm. what he was trying to do. Um, first, how did I manage to re- to reconstruct uh, what I'm going to tell you? Um, uh, the late John Clear uh, from University College London. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, told me on a number of occasions that uh, unfortunately uh, the archive of the uh, Jewish Committee in St. Petersburg um, uh, was burnt in 1862-63, and we know about this uh, fire um, in the um, in the um, Ministry of the uh, Interior in Russia that destroyed this archive. So the uh, proceedings of the committee which really discussed the draft and the reaction to the draft, were lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was sitting in Warsaw, working on my Stettel book, doing you know absolutely different things, and uh, looking at uh, small Stettler, uh in uh, Poland and in Russia. And suddenly I came across a copy of these proceedings. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, how could they end up uh, in Warsaw? I believe Nicholas exchanged uh, his views and his plans with Constantine, mm-hmm. his brother, and he used to send him copies of uh, most important documents uh, that contained uh, Nicholas' plans uh, of how to reorganize this part of the society or uh, this ethnic group and so on. And Constantine simply had this files in front of him. So this is how they ended up in Warsaw. So sitting in Warsaw, I managed to reconstruct what uh, what nobody uh, had been able to reconstruct uh, a working in Moscow and St. Petersburg and other places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now, what I realize is that uh, when the communities uh, understood that uh, the um, government is trying to introduce a new kind of regulations and extend the draft uh, to the Jews, um, they first tried to bribe the officials. Mm-hmm. They raised funds, enormous funds, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, in, in really in, in hundreds uh, of thousands of silver rubles. Mm-hmm. Every Jewish family would contribute uh, a, a, a grosh, a copic, mm-hmm. but something they contributed because they did not want this to, 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 to take place. Um, at the next stage, when they realized this does not work, they rushed to the Hasidic masters. They asked the Hasidic masters to intervene. Why the Hasidic masters? Because, you know, they knew that's a Kabbalistic and Talmudic concept that became very popular among Jews in the 19th century. Hashem gozer mevatla. Literally, God creates, in brackets, an evil decree against his, you know, chosen people, the mm-hmm. Jews. Um, and the Hasidic master, the tzaddik, the head of the Hasidic court, is able to cancel it. Mm-hmm. So this Talmudic quote became um, enveloped in, in, in some sort of an aura, uh, and this aura was connected to a Hasidic master. People thought that you know Hasidic masters really can't cancel the uh, evil decrees of the government. Mm-hmm. 
also didn't work. So the next step um, was uh, to uh, simply do whatever they could to avoid uh, the draft, uh, and it did not help. Now, what is interesting, and I believe this is uh, quite a, a novelty, um, when people discuss uh, the draft of Jews, they talk about uh, hundreds and thousands of people who were drafted. But when I looked at the, at the figures, I was amazed. Look, we are talking about, let's say, a million and a half Jews in the Pale of Settlement in uh, 1827. You know how many Jews were drafted? Hmm. How many Jews were in the in the in the uh, books of the um, ministry of, uh, of in the war ministry? Hmm. Go ahead, tell how us. How many? I don't know. Oh, eight, 1800. 1800, yeah. 1800, right? So, uh, and it was up to the community to decide who will be drafted. And mm -hmm. the community uh, realized that uh, in order not to um, uh, send to the army people who are paying taxes and who are uh, really earning, uh, um, um, you know, some small buck, uh, they'd rather have uh, minors drafted. Mm -hmm. So it was a decision of the Kahal. It was not the decision of the Russian government. It was the decision of the Kahal, of the umbrella uh, organization mm -hmm. of the Jewish community in every shtetl, that uh, they would draft this amount of, of minors and this amount of, of adults. And this is how we ended up having um, 800 uh, children and 800 adult Jews sent to the Russian army in 1827. Mm -hmm. Were there people at this time, this very early moment in the imposition of conscription, who stood up and said, you know, this is our obligation as imperial subjects, and if we want to be treated equally, then we have to send our sons to the army? Very, very, very few. There were so-called maskilim, um, enlightened Jews, mm -hmm. uh, but even these masculine were saying, yes, uh, to serve in the army is a good thing, but to serve in the Russian army under the present conditions is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by present condition? Um, look, um, in Austria, in Prussia, in Italy, or in France, uh, let's say... Um, um, we are the family and our children are dropped into the army. Mm -hmm. We want to visit them. We can go and visit them. It's not a big deal, right? Uh, but in, in Russia, with the pale of settlement and with the prohibition of, for Jews to live or reside or go outside the pale of settlement, mm -hmm. and the pale of settlement is 15 western provinces of the empire, mm -hmm. it actually implied that if you were... Um, uh, if you were um, relative or your child is drafted into the army and sent uh, in, uh, let's say, in Yalutarovsk, in Tobolsk, in Kazan, or in Simbirsk, or, uh, you know, in St. Petersburg, you cannot go and visit him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're losing uh, this uh, contact with, with your relative. And mm -hmm. it, it was terrible. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe they are right. Yeah, no, I see what, what you mean. They did not realize, what they did not realize, they thought that, uh, you know, it's like sending your child into the territory of the enemy, into mm -hmm. the territory which is religiously alien to you. Mm -hmm. They did not realize that under the pressure, the war ministry would introduce laws that would allow, that would accommodate observant Jews, and 100% of them were observant, uh, in the army as, uh, as Jews. Mm -hmm. Now, you've anticipated my next question, uh, as I expected you would. What uh, attempts did the... Um, Russian government under Nicholas make to accommodate Jewish religious practices and travel and things like this? Um, again, I believe it's important to look at what they did for uh, not only for Jews, but mm -hmm. only for other um, um, ethnic and religious minorities. Mm -hmm. um, Muslims were allowed uh, to have uh, their imams uh, in the army, um, and the imams were allowed to have beards, something, mm -hmm. you know, uh, not 
usually accepted um, in in certain regiments. Mm -hmm. um, the same can be said about Jews. Uh, Jews were allowed uh, to have their prayer groups. Um, the army would appoint a person in the regiment who would be responsible for keeping the religious artifacts. The religious artifacts, such as prayer shawls and, and, and phylacteries, were given to uh, the soldiers um, uh, when, whenever they, they needed them. Um, I don't think they put phylacteries uh, every morning. I, I don't think it's feasible, but they did have the holidays. They have. Uh, they were able to um, to observe um, uh, certain holidays and Shabbat. The list of the holidays and 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 uh, and semi holidays uh, were distributed among um, uh, the regimental uh, commanders. And uh, from what I know is that uh, more often than not, the regimental commanders were sympathetic uh, to having uh, Jews uh, observing their holidays. Why? Because they knew. Uh, if they do not celebrate, if they do not spend time, you know, as, as a religious community, they would go drink and play cards and go to the brothel. <laughs> That's what Russian soldiers do, right? So it was, it was not because they were so philo-Semitic. I don't want to say that, and I'm not saying that. They yeah. simply, you know, what the army commander is interested in, in, in the discipline, right? Yeah. And they know that uh, you let these Jews pray for four hours in their prayer room, and that they were allocating prayer rooms um, in uh, different uh, barracks and in different um, uh, you know facilities rented by the army uh, from the local dwellers. And they would allocate a room for the Jewish soldiers, and Jewish soldiers would would uh, go there to uh, you know to get together um, for the. Um, Celebration of the holiday, or um, or, or, or of uh, Shabbat. Mm -hmm. well, um, what what did they do about keeping kosher? Um, I think uh, this is uh, out of question. Uh, I think they all uh, became, so to say, uh, modern uh, American Jews. Mm -hmm. People who know something about Judaism. Uh, people who uh, celebrate certain holidays, but people who do not eat kosher food. Right. I think that having kosher food was absolutely um, out of question uh, yeah. for uh, most Jews who were in the Russian army. Uh -huh. There were attempts. There were attempts at a later stage uh, in the 1860s, 1870s, of different communities, especially in Poland, to provide um, uh, the reserve soldiers uh, who were. Um, um, uh, who were now uh, brought to the army for, I would say, two, three months training. Mm -hmm. uh, there were attempts of the local communities to provide them with the kosher food, uh, but this kosher food was was uh, so meager and and uh, and so bad that in most cases the soldiers, uh, the, the commanders would say, you know, uh, oh, oh, you should uh, you should eat from the regimental pot. Mm -hmm. What did the what did the um, what did the rabbinate what did the rebbe say about this? Did they give them because uh, there are allowances that can be given for this kind of thing. Did they say to the observant Jews, well, it's okay if you don't keep kosher while you're in the army? Um, no, the rabbis did not say that. Mm -hmm. uh, most rabbis um, in, uh, let me emphasize this, most rabbis in East Europe would not endorse eating non-kosher food. Really? Most rabbis in, in Austria, in Prussia, in France, and in Italy would say serving in the army means that you are fulfilling a religious obligation yeah. vis-a-vis the state, right? And there is a law when you fulfill one religious obligation, you are exempt from other right. obligations. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. You would say, you know, you do that, 
but uh, you know, uh, don't worry about the kosher food. Yeah. Most rabbis in East Europe, including um, such um, an illustrious rabbi as the Hafiz Chaim, um, uh, whose real name is Israel uh, Mayor Hakohen Pupko, um, uh, who lived in Rabin and was uh, the top-notch authority among the uh, rabbinic scholars mm-hmm. at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, he wrote a book. A, a religious digest, I would say, uh, for the uh, observant soldiers. It's like a 150-page book that delineates all, all sorts of obligations uh, of the observant Jews in mm-hmm. the Russian army. And he would say, uh, you should uh, abstain from uh, from meat, uh, you should certainly eat only vegetarian food, um, these, uh, and those are the ways for you to... Um, stay kosher uh, over Passover when uh, the laws become uh, extremely uh, cumbersome. So he he really delineated all these uh, ways to circumvent uh, uh, the necessity to eat non-kosher food, and he would say, you should still keep kosher. My understanding is that it did not work. These mm-hmm. are all descriptive documents, and when I look into what was going on in the regiments, I understand the soldiers had a wonderful dilemma, either to start from death or to, uh, <laughs> yeah. or to eat non-kosher food. Yeah. And when you're a soldier, when you have to carry weaponry, when you have to do uh, yeah. all sorts of physical work, you, you know what will be your choice. Yeah, no, I, I know exactly. So what were relations like between, um, uh, let's just say, to pick one, the major ethnic group, Russian soldiers and Jewish soldiers? Um, my sense is that relations uh, might be uh, tense, and, and were quite tense, between uh, the soldiers and the officers, uh, the um, uh, NCOs and, um, and, and the colonels. But um, on the level of uh, the army, on, on the, uh, among the rank and file, uh, the relations were uh, quite normal, sympathetic, and uh, and very rarely uh, uh, intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen a single fact, uh, uh, a single occurrence that I would put on the uh, on the table and say, oh, this is the um, oh, manifestation of the. Uh, uh, animosity between the Russian soldiers and the Jewish soldiers. Once, once you are uh, a soldier, you are a soldier. Mm-hmm. Uh, who you are religiously and so on and so forth, this is very, very secondary. Moreover, quite often I saw that um, Russian soldiers of Russian uh, Orthodox descent and, and Jewish soldiers and, and Georgian soldiers and Tartar soldiers are getting together uh, for a drink, um, are... Um, um, allowing one another, if uh, one of them is under arrest, mm-hmm. to run away, or uh, doing all sorts of things that show that on the um, horizontal level there were much more uh, there were much more sympathetic relations than on the vertical level. And this uh, uns- uh, the uh, conflicts on the vertical level um, certainly were, I would say, class conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than religious conflict. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I, I suppose this is a bad analogy, but I'll make it anyway because it occurs to me. You know, Americans will often tell the story of uh, the integration of blacks into the American army in the Truman administration and then point to the fact that it was a marvelous engine of broader social integration. Um, would you say the same thing is true of the Russian case in the 19th century between Russians and Jews? Um, yes and no. I've seen, by the way, a number of... Um, uh, American movies about uh, Afro-American soldiers uh, and their flight uh, in, in the army, mm-hmm. um, which was some, sometimes uh, as difficult as the flight of the Jews mm-hmm. in the Russian army. However, however um, a, an Afro-American soldier in the American army um, would um, 
would obtain all sorts of privileges mm -hmm. and um, rights uh, once he is out of the army, once he, once he retired. Mm -hmm. uh, this was not the case in the Russian army. Mm -hmm. So again, duties were extended to the Jews, but not necessarily rights. Uh, it's interesting that um, those who served under strictest laws of the army of Nicholas I between, uh, I would say, um, 1827 and um, the 1860s, before the, um, after Nicholas, but before the uh, military reform of 1874, mm -hmm. um, these Jews were allowed to remain um, in their place of service or even to resettle outside of the Pale of Settlement. Mm -hmm. So one, uh, one of the most important privileges for a Jew in Russia to be able to reside outside of the Pale of Settlement was open uh, for the Jewish soldiers uh, who served under uh, the uh, Nikolaevan uh, army. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I've read another book recently about a similar sort of topic. Um, I actually interviewed the author, and it's about... Um, the indigene, that is the French colonial troops that were brought to um, France during World War One, and uh, they were sent back home, and they felt very hard done about this, that they weren't given, because the French promised them all kinds of rights of citizenship, and then give, gave them, was there anyone in the Jewish community who said, you know, well, we served our time in the army, and now we should be released from the, the bondage which has been imposed upon us? Uh this issue became a big political issue um, when uh, the uh, war ministry um, commissioned a number of people to uh, think what to do with the Jews uh, in the reformed army um, after 1874. Mm -hmm. And this issue became a hot political issue discussed by each and every Russian journalist, Russian Jewish journalist, mm -hmm. um, in Russian Jewish press, in Hebrew Russian press, in Yiddish Russian press, uh, in uh, the 1870s and up to the yeah. 19th. Everybody was saying, we are fulfilling our sacred obligation vis-a-vis uh, -vis the state. We deserve the right uh, to uh, be considered uh, full-fledged citizens, uh, or they did not use the word citizen at the time, they used the word full-fledged subject yes. um, of a state. Uh, so uh, we need to be given a chance to reside outside the Pale of Settlement. The Pale of Settlement should be lifted, and uh, Jews should be allowed to live um, uh, everywhere in the, in the country, and this would certainly alleviate the economic burden um, of the crowded Jewish communities in the Shtetls back there in the Pale. Uh -huh. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Is this the origin of the Russian-Jewish question? Um, well, one of the things, the reason I ask this is that, you know, I study the 16th and 17th century, and you're quite right to say that um, Jews to Russians b before the mid, let's say, 18th century existed only as an idea. They had never met any of them because there were none of them in Russia. Um, so there really couldn't be a, a Jewish question, although they did write about Jews. They only did it from what they knew from the Old Testament. Um, and, but then in the 19th century, you know, they have this profound confrontation with these Jews. And at that point, um, it enters publicistic uh, discussion. And, and, and at some point, it becomes, you, you start to see what, what is a modern kind of anti-Semitism. That's what I was hoping you would talk about. Um, let me uh, step back for a second. Um, when you say um, the origin of the Jewish question, uh, I need to emphasize that uh, Jews were not a question uh, uh, to anybody in Russia um, uh, among Russian um, governmental hierarchs uh, between, I would say, the 1800s and the 1860s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I don't want to overemphasize the importance of uh, uh, the Jewish question um, in uh, uh, the times of Nicholas I. Mm -hmm. 
with Alexander I. Um, the Jewish question becomes um, a, 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 an important issue in the 1860s mm -hmm. and, and onward. However, this is an interesting story. The first, um, I think, the first most important story written by um, a Russian Jewish writer on the Jewish question in Russia was about the reaction of the Jewish communities to the draft of the mm -hmm. Jews and about the draft of the Jews to the Russian army. Mm -hmm. So starting, and, and this uh, story appeared, I believe, I might be a mistake, 1859, it was written by Osip Rabinovich, and the story was called Strafnoi, the Penalty Soldier, yeah. about one of the Kahal elders um, uh, drafted into the army, and mm -hmm. he's an enlightened Jew, so he's uh, reading uh, um, uh, Moses Mendelssohn while he is in the army, mm -hmm. and um, he's an elderly person who has to serve um, under the... Uh, uh, strict laws of the Nikolaevan army. So it, it, it's quite, quite, an, quite a, 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 a passionate story written by a person who understands that, look, you draft us into the army and you do not extend rights to us. Um, so uh, starting from this particular time, until I would say the times of uh, uh, Vasily Grossman to the times of uh, uh, when Vasily Grossman writes his novel uh, uh, Life and Faith. Life and Faith, yeah. The question of Jews serving in the Russian army is perhaps the most important question for the forging of the Russian Jewish identity and for um, the discussion of the Russian treatment of the Jews. Uh -huh. So we have we have a, a, a record of uh, Russian Jewish writers who all the time address one of the same topic. So when they need to discuss the hottest issue related to the to the Jewish question in Russia, they turn to the uh, uh, role of the Jewish in the Russian army, or to the um, uh, Jewish soldiers, or to the communal response to the conscription. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. And why why is it so important? Why do they always come back to this topic? Because I think uh, they feel that whatever Jews do. Uh, however heroic are the deeds on the front, um, they come back uh, to uh, their place of residence and be on the street as Jews. Yeah, and this is uh, before 1917 and after 1917. And yeah. you feel this in 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 um, the Red Cavalry by Babel. You feel it yeah. uh, in books by Rabinovich. You feel it in in many writings of Yiddish and and Hebrew writers who are in Russia, and certainly in 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 uh, the novel by Grossman. Yeah, no, I, I noticed what you mean. I mean, is that kind of notion that they they won't properly assimilate, at least in the way that the Russians want them to assimilate. I was going to ask a, follow, a, a, a kind of ridiculous question, if you don't mind. We're coming to the end of the interview, but I watch a lot of war movies. <laughs> I just like them. And I don't like war, but I like war movies. And, and, and maybe you have as well. In, in many American war movies, especially uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, there's always a character of the plucky Jewish guy from Brooklyn, the fast-talking Jewish guy. Um, and 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 he he's one of the he's one of the guys you know there's the farm boy and there's the the rich kid and there's the 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 the, the NCO with the cigar in his mouth and then there's the West Point grad and there's the plucky Jewish guy from Brooklyn who has a heavy um, you know Brooklyn accent is there any similar sort of character in Russian or in um, in uh, in Yiddish letters of uh, you know the Jewish soldier. Um. I would say in the writings of uh, Russian Jewish writers, there are plenty of these kind of images. Uh, think about uh, the um, image of Levinson in uh, 
Padyev's novel Razgrom. Mm-hmm. Uh, speak. Uh, one of the most important novels uh, about the uh, um, conquest of, of uh, uh, Far East by the uh, Red Army troops mm-hmm. uh, during the civil war in Russia. Yeah, I've not read it, unfortunately. And there is there is an image of um, of a Jewish um, not only soldier. He is, he is one of the uh, leaders of the detachment, and he's bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is, I would say, he's very ambiguously uh, portrayed, uh, but he is uh, certainly. Uh, um, not very well integrated into Russian media, and, and he is feeble, and he is undecisive. So there are many things, many bad things that you can say about him. Mm-hmm. This is not the case of the movies. You do not see uh, uh, Jews um, in Jewish soldiers in the Russian movies. Unlike you have, for instance, an image of a Jewish soldier in um, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. That's what I was. That's what I was thinking. And I was trying to think of Russian war movies I've seen, and and um, uh, yeah, um. Billy Sonsov Pustinia. I don't. I can't think. Of a, I can't. I can't think of a Russian or a Jewish soldier in that one. And that's sort of your classic sort of Russian epic war film. But um, yeah, and I, I don't think. Uh, there's no. I can't think of anything in one of those. But so it's, it's interesting that that doesn't exist. Let me ask this question: um, Did you discover uh, in the course of your research, or was this sort of family lore that your grandfather, uh, who had volunteered for the Russian army? Oh, I knew that. Uh, I knew that. Uh, look, um, uh, I knew this since time immemorial. This was not uh, a big deal for me. It was just uh, in the family archive. Uh, this uh, photo uh-huh, that yeah, I found in the book. Semyon Vasilievich Petrovsky, who volunteered the Russian army, and he was certainly born um, uh, uh, Shimon the Mayor Stern. Um, and and he, he, he was uh, um, a uh, volunteer in the Russian army from 1914 or 1915 until uh, the end of the uh, First World War. And then he served... Um, 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 in the Russian army, in this you know, red army mm-hmm. uh, after 1917, and then he was again uh, uh, a Jewish soldier in the Russian army after 1941. Mm-hmm. He also volunteered. Um, so it was uh, uh, something normal, but I never wanted to do what uh, people think I was trying to do. I was never trying to reconstruct the context mm-hmm. uh, of his service. I was not doing that. Mm-hmm. Remember, my dissertation um, ended up uh, in 1914 exactly because I did not want to mm-hmm. take uh, a look at the First World War, um, I added uh, a chapter, I think it's not a bad chapter, uh, I added it to a book, um, uh, so you will find a chapter covering the First World War, mm-hmm. but again, it was done not to accommodate uh, my memories about my uh, grandfather, who I remember pretty well. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you are, uh, let me ask this question, you are calling into question um, what is kind of sacred uh, Jewish lore about the uh, 19th century Jewish past. Many, many people still tell these stories, as, as you know, and, and remember how the evil czarist authorities uh, came. You know, I'm thinking, actually, you just brought to mind, um, what is the name of the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Um, right. Yeah, you see these things. Now, you're calling into question some of this. How, how, have, uh, how has the book been received among sort of broader circles? Or do we know well, yet? Look, certainly it, it raises some brows, uh, no doubt about it. Um, people would like to, to, to hear the story how we suffered, uh, how we ran away from the old world, and how we are happy here in America. Yeah. And I'm telling the story about <laughs> Russian government being quite often uh, uh, rational and rationalistic, about Russian army treating Jews evenly, about Jews who managed... You know, we managed. That's what yeah. I'm telling. I'm telling yeah. a different kind of a story. I'm, yeah. I'm telling a story about normalcy. And they want to, tell, to, to hear the story about suffering. So this normalcy um, is something that people have to... Uh, um, to I'm looking for, an, for a word. 
they have to live with it. Yeah, they have to accept it. Yeah, understand. And they have to. They have to. To uh, to have guts to be able to accept the story, and, and I yeah. believe this story is much more important than telling a story about the incessant Jewish sufferings under the Russian regime. I yeah. think I'm telling a very different story. Yeah. I'm telling a story about normalcy and about uh, rationalism, about modernization, and and I'm showing that these Jews managed. You know, so I'm looking at the grades of the um, uh, grades of the Cantonist uh, battalions, and I'm showing that Jews are uh, you know in the mainstream. Yeah, yeah. Which no, means I... that they managed. Yeah, I think I think it's a very important story, and, I, and I'm glad. You know, it's funny. You, I really like the way you put that. How you know we, the Americans love to tell the story about how they suffered in the old world, uh, and then they broke loose of their bonds and came to the new world, and they're happy. Basically, every American ethnic group tells that story. <laughs> it's just the classic American story. My people tell that story, and we escaped from Germany. You know, it's like Germany was bad in the early 19th century, and so we came here, and then we were happy. <laughs> right. Look, um, I don't know how bad Germany was really, but I know my relatives said it was really bad. <laughs> I'm trying to say something very different. I'm saying that there are different uh, yardsticks to measure normalcy. Yeah. And if we measure Russian normalcy with its Russian yardstick, you will see how different will be your perception of people who live there. Yeah. Well, and also, uh, uh, you know, to uh, summarize uh, the discussion of the book and to bridge uh, um, the discussion of uh, of myself, I would just uh, uh, very briefly tell you that I think that. I I need to I need to tell this uh, um, you know up front. Uh, I was not unhappy there. I was quite successful there. And I I don't want to make my story into my history, but uh, certainly I do think that normalcy is something that was pretty much characteristic of the Soviet regime, and yeah. you could survive under it. Yeah, sure. No, I, I know just what you mean. I, 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 it's funny because when I lecture about the Soviet Union, I often stick in and very prominently the, the, the sentence that socialism worked pretty well for tens of millions of people, that they lived very happy, good lives there, and we shouldn't think otherwise. Um, right. Now, that doesn't mean socialism is a wonderful thing, but it certainly worked for a lot of people, um, and you know that's important to say. Well, let me say this. We've taken up a lot of your time, Johannan, and, and, and I really appreciate it. It's been just as entertaining as I knew it would be. Let me ask you our traditional final question here on New Books in History. What are you working on now? What is your next project? Um, now I'm uh, delving into the material culture of the shtetl. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking at the shtetl uh, after the second partition of Poland. That is to say, um, um, when uh, three provinces uh, I'm interested in, uh, Volhynia, Podol, and Kiev provinces, uh, became under Russian control, uh, or found themselves under Russian control. And um, I am trying to reconstruct the material culture of the shtetl, how this material culture shaped uh, people's imagination and mm -hmm. uh, people's everyday behavior and how people's everyday behavior shaped the material culture. Mm -hmm. I can think of no one better to do the project, and I hope that you come on the show when you're done with it. Thank you very much. It's absolutely Thanks. my pleasure. Well, Johannin Petrovsky-Shern, uh, we've been talking about um, Jews in the Russian Army, uh, 1827 to 1917, drafted in modernity. Terrific book, and thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Johannin Petrovsky-Shern about his new book, Jews in the Russian Army, 1827 to 1917, drafted into modernity. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.